0: hello everyone so here is the last girl my Nadia Murad part 2 chapter 4 I hope you are liking it it is a bit difficult book but amazing you know real events it is nothing is fiction in it so a little bit hard sometimes sometimes to realize that oh it's really it's everything is real so chapter 4 I hope you like it so let's get started Abu Batat did not stop touching us until we arrived in Mosul. The clock above the windshield read 2 a.m. when we stopped in front of a large building a home that I thought must have belonged to a very wealthy family. The jeeps drove into a garage and the buses parked in front of the house opening their doors for us. Come on, get out, Abu Batat shouted, and we began slowly lifting our bodies out of the seats. Few of us had slept, and we were all sore and edging from sitting. My body hurt where Abu Batat had touched me, but I was wrong to think that now that the bus had stopped he would leave me alone. We lined up to exit holding on to whatever we had brought with us and he waited by the open door, putting out his hands to grope girls as they stepped off the bus. He ran his hands over my body from my head to my feet. We entered through the garage. I had never seen such a nice house. It was huge with large sitting rooms and bedrooms and enough furniture. I thought for a half dozen families. No one in Kocho, not even Ahmed Jaso, lived in a house like this. The rooms were still full of the clocks and the rugs I assumed had belonged to the family that once lived here and I noticed that one of the militants was drinking from a mug that had been decorated with a posed family photo. I wondered what had happened to them. There were Islamic State militants everywhere dressed in uniforms with their radios quacking constantly. They watched us as we were sent into three rooms, each of which opened onto a small landing, from where I sat with Catherine and a few others. I could see into the other rooms where women and girls shuffled around in a ditch, looking for people they knew but had been separated from on the buses. The room was crowded and we sat on the floor, leaning against each other. It was almost impossible not to fall asleep. The two small windows in the room were closed and the curtains drawn. but luckily someone had set up a swamp cooler, the hulking cheap relatives of air conditioners that are common throughout Iraq, which thinned the air and made it easier to breathe. There was no furniture in our room except for some mattresses tucked up against the walls. A sickening odor was coming out of the whole bathroom. A girl had a cell phone and when they came to search her, she tried to flush it down the toilet. Someone whispered. I heard them talking about it when we got here. At the entrance to the bathroom, I could see a pile of headscarves, like what we had left in Solek, lying on the tile floor like flower petals. After the rooms were full, a militant pointed at where I was sitting. Come with me, he said then turned and walked toward the door. Don't go. Catherine wrapped her small arms around me, trying to keep me from standing up. I did not know what he wanted, but I did not think I could say no to him. If I don't, they will just force me, I told her, and I followed the militant. He led me to the garage on the first floor, where Abu Batat and Nafa were waiting along with another militant. The third militant spoke Kurdish, and I was shocked when I recognized him. It was Suheb, who owned a store in Sinjar city. Yazidis visited his store all the time, and I'm sure many thought of him as a friend. All three men looked at me angrily. They still wanted to punish me for my outburst on the bus. What's your name? Nafa asked. And when I tried to back away, he pulled my hair and pushed me against the wall. I asked you, what is your name? I answered him, Nadia, I said, when were you born, he asked and I told him, 1993, next he asked, are you here with any of your family? I paused, I did not know if they wanted to punish Catherine and the others just for being related to me, so I lied, I'm here with the other girls, I said, I don't know what happened to my family, why did you scream on the bus, Nafa tightened his grip on my hair. I was terrified. I felt my body, which had always been small and thin, practically disappear in his hands. I told myself to say whatever I had to force them to let me go back upstairs to Catherine. I was scared. I told him honestly. This guy in front of you, I gestured toward Abu Batat, touched me. The whole trip from Salt Lake, he was touching us. What do you think you are here for? Nafa repeated what he had said on the bus, you are an infidel as and you belong to the Islamic State now, so get used to it. Then he spat in my face, Abu Batat took out a cigarette which he lit and gave to Nafa. I was surprised. I thought smoking was illegal under Islamic State law, but they did not mean to smoke the cigarette. Please don't put it out on my face, I thought, still concerned back then with being pretty. Nafa pushed the lit cigarette into my shoulder, pressing it down through the fabric of the dresses and shirts I had layered on that morning, until it hit my skin and went out. The smell of burnt fabric and skin was horrible, but I tried not to scream in pain. Screaming only got you into more trouble. When he lit another cigarette and put it out on my stomach, I could not help it. I cried out. She screams now. Will she scream tomorrow? Abu Batat said to the others. He wanted them to be even harsher with me. She needs to understand what she is and what she is here for. Leave me alone and I won't do it again, please, I said. Nafa slapped my face hard twice and then let go of me. Go back to the other sabaya, he said, and never make another sound again, okay? Back upstairs, the room was dark and crowded. I pulled my hair over my shoulder and put my hands on my stomach to hide the burns from my knees. And then I found Catherine sitting next to a woman who looked to be in her late 20s or early 30s. The woman was not from Kocho, she must have arrived at the center before us. She had two young children with her, one a baby young enough to be breastfeeding and she was pregnant. She held the infant to her chest, rocking slightly to keep him quiet and asked me what had happened downstairs. I just shook my head. Are you in pain? The woman asked me. Although I did not know her, I leaned against her. I felt very weak, I nodded. Then I told her everything about leaving Kocho and being separated from my mother and my sisters about seeing my brothers being driven away. I told her about the bus and Abu Batat. They beat me, I said, and I showed her the cigarette burns on my shoulder and on my stomach, raw and painful. Here, she said, reaching into her bag and handing me a tube, it is a diaper gray but it might help with the burns. I thanked her and took the lotion to the bathroom, where I rubbed some of it onto my shoulder and stomach. It soothed the bones a little. Then I rubbed a bit more onto the parts of my body where Abu Batad had touched me. I noticed that I had my period and I asked a militant for some sanitary pads which he handed to me without looking at me. When I sat back down in the room, I asked the women, what has been happening here? What have they done to you? Do you really want to know?" she asked and I nodded. On the first day, on August 3rd, about 400 Yazidi women and children were taken here, she began. It is an Islamic State center where the militants live and work. That's why there are so many of them here. She paused and looked at me. But it is also where we are sold and given away. Why have not you been sold? I asked. Because? I'm married. They will wait for 40 days before giving me to a militant to be his sabaya. She said. That's one of their roles. I don't know when they will come for you. If they don't choose you today, they will choose you tomorrow. Each time they come, they take some of the women. They rape them and then they bring them back or sometimes I think they keep them. Sometimes they rape them here in a room in the house and just bring them back when they are done i sat there silently the pain from my bones built slowly like a pot of water slowly coming to a boil and i winced do you want a pill for the pain she asked but i shook my head i don't like taking pills i told her drink something then she said and i gratefully took the water from her drinking a few sips of the lukewarm water her baby had quieted down and was close to sleeping It won't take much time, she continued in a softer voice. They will come and they will take you too, and they will rape you. Some girls rub ashes or dirt on their faces or mess up their hair, but it does not matter because they just make them shower and look nice again. Some of the girls have committed suicide or tried to by cutting through the veins in their wrist right over there. She gestured to the bathroom. You can see the blood high on the walls where the cleaners don't notice it. She did not tell me not to worry or that everything was going to be fine. When she stopped talking, I leaned my head against her shoulder, close to where her baby had just fallen asleep. That night, when I closed my eyes, it was only for a moment. I was exhausted but too terrified to sleep. It was summer, so the sun rose early and when the light came in, hazy and dim through the heavy curtains, I saw that most of the girls had been awake all night like me. They were groggy, rubbing their eyes and yawning into the sleeve of their dresses. Militants came in with some rice and tomato soup for breakfast on plastic plates that they threw away afterward. And I was so hungry, I ate some as soon as they put it in front of me. Many of the girls had spent the night crying and more started again in the morning. A girl from Gocho who was about Dimal's age but who, unlike Dimal, had not managed to fool the militants into thinking she was a married woman, sat close to me. Where are we? she asked. She had not recognized any of the buildings or roads as we were driving. I don't know exactly, I told her. Somewhere in Mosul? Mosul? she whispered. We had all grew up so close to the city, but few of us had ever been. A Sheik entered the room, and we stopped talking, he was an older man with white hair, dressed in the baggy black pants and sandals, popular among ISIS militants, and although his pants were shorter than usual and slightly ill-fitting, he walked around the room and stared at us with an arrogance that made me think he must be someone very important. How old is she? He pointed to a young girl from Kocho covering in the corner. She was about 13. Very young, Hamilton told him proudly, Sorry for the disturbance. I could tell from the Sheikh's accent that he was from Mosul. He must have helped the terrorists take over the city. Maybe he was a wealthy businessman who could help ISIS grow or maybe he was a religious figure or had been important when Saddam was in power and had been waiting for the moment when he could get back the authority that the Americans and Shutis had taken from him. It was possible too that he wholeheartedly believed all the religious propaganda. That's what that all told us when we asked why they were part of ISIS, even the ones who spoke no Arabic and did not know how to pray. They told us that they were all right and the God was on their side. The Sheikh pointed at us as if he already owned every girl in the room, and after a few minutes, he settled on three, all from Gocho. After handing the militant a fistful of American dollars, he left the room and the three girls were dragged out behind him downstairs to where his purchases were logged and proceeded. The mood in the room shifted to complete panic. By now we knew that ISIS had planned for us, but we had no idea when more buyers would arrive and how they would treat us. Waiting was torture. Some girls whispered about trying to escape, but that was impossible even if we could make it out the window. The house, which was clearly some kind of Islamic State center, swarmed with militants. There was no way any of us could slip away without someone noticing. Plus Mosul is a sprawling, unfamiliar city, if we did manage to somehow slip past the crowds of militants downstairs, we would have no way of knowing what direction to run in. They had driven us here at night with the windows covered. They would do anything to make sure we did not get out alive. The talk soon shifted to suicide. I admit that at first it crossed my mind. Anything would be better than what the women had described to me the night before. Catherine and I made a pact with a few others. We would rather die than be bought and used by Daesh, we said. Killing ourselves seemed more honorable than submitting to the militants, our only way of fighting back. Still, it was impossible that we would watch while one of our neighbors took her own life. One girl wrapped her shawl around her neck, saying she was going to strangle herself, but others forced it out of her hands. Some said, we can't escape, but if we get to the roof, we can jump off. I kept thinking of my mother, for her nothing in life was bad enough to justify suicide. You have to believe that God will take care of you. She would tell me whenever something bad happened to me. After my accident on the farm, she had sat beside me in the hospital praying that I would live and she spent so much money on the jewelry she gave me when I woke up. She had wanted me to live so badly, I could not take my own life now. Quickly, we reversed our pact. We would not kill ourselves, we would help one another as much as we could and take the first opportunity to escape. While we waited in that house, it became clear how waste the slave trade was in ISIS-held Mosul. Thousands of Yazidi girls had been taken from their homes and were being bought and traded or given as gifts to high-ranking militants and sheikhs and transported to cities all over Iraq and Syria. It did not make a difference if one girl killed herself or even a hundred. ISIS would not be bothered by our deaths and they would not change what they were doing. Besides, by now having lost a few slaves, the militants guarded us to make sure that even if we cut our wrist or strangled ourselves with our scarves, we would not die from the wounds. A militant came through the room demanding whatever documents we had held on to. Any papers that say you are a Yazidi, give them to us, he said, shoving them into a bag. Downstairs, they piled up all the documents, ID, Russian card, birth certificates, and burned them, leaving the ashes in a mound. It was as though they thought that by destroying our documents, they could erase the existence of Yazidis from Iraq. I handed over everything I had except for my mother's Russian card, which I kept dug into my bra. It was all I had of her inside the bathroom i splashed some water on my face and arms a mirror hung over the sink but i kept my gaze downward i could not look at myself i suspected that i already would not recognize the girl who looked back on the wall above the shower i saw the blood the women from the night before had warned me about the small reddish brown stains high up on the tiles were all that was left of some Yaziti girls who had come before me After that we were separated again, this time into two groups. I managed to stay with Catherine and we were lined up and put back on the buses. Some others, all girls I knew from Kocho, stayed behind. We did not get to say goodbye to them and later we learned that their group was taken across the border to Raqqa, the capital of ISIS in Syria. I was so relieved to be in Iraq, no matter what happened. I thought I could survive as long as I stayed in my own country. I moved quickly to the back of the bus to make sure I got a seat beside a window, where I thought it would be harder for Abu Gatat or another militant to reach me. It was strange to be outside in the heavy summer light after spending the past few days inside with the curtains drawn or being moved from city to city in the dark. I peered through the curtains as the bus moved, watching the Mosul streets. At first they looked completely normal, just as Sinjar city had, with people buying groceries and walking their kids to school. But unlike Sinjar, Mosul was full of Islamic State militants. The men were stationed at checkpoints, patrolling the streets, clustered in the back of trucks, or just living their new lives in the changed city, buying vegetables, and carrying on conversations with neighbors. All the women were completely covered in black abayas and niqabs. ISIS had made it illegal for women to leave home uncovered or alone, so they floated through the streets almost invisible. Sorry, invisible. We sat quietly, stunned and terrified. I thanked God that I was with Catherine, Nisreen, Jilan and Rosalyn. Their presence gave me the small bit of strength I needed not to completely lose my mind. Not everyone was so lucky. One girl had been separated from everyone she knew back in Kocho, and she started weeping uncontrollably, uncontrollably. Each of you has someone, but I have no one, she said, bringing her hands in her lap. We wanted to comfort her, but no one was brave enough to try. At close to 10 in the morning, we pulled up to a two-story greenhouse, slightly smaller than the first, and were pushed inside. On the second floor, a room had already been cleared of most of the possessions of the family who once lived there, although a bible on the shelf and a small cross on the wall made it clear that they had been Christian. Christians I don't know what's happening today. (laughs) A few guys were already there when we arrived. They were all from Tel Azir and they sat close together. More thin mattresses were piled up along the walls and the small windows had either been blacked out or covered with heavy blankets filtering the midday sun into a dim depressing light. The whole space leaked of cleaning solution, the same fluorescent blue paste women used in Kocho to sterilize our kitchens and bathrooms. While we sat there there waiting, a militant came into the room to make sure the windows were completely covered and no one could see in or out of them. When he noticed the Bible and the cross, he grumbled to himself, picked up a plastic crate, tossed them inside it, then carried the crate out of the room. On his way out, he yelled at us to shower. All you Yazidis, do you always stink like this? He said with an execrated look of disgust on his face. I thought back to Saud coming home from Kurdistan and telling us that people there made fun of Yazidis, saying that we smelled bad and how angry that used to make me. But with ISIS, I hoped I did stink. Filth was armor protecting us from the hands of men like Abu Batat. I wanted the militants to be so put off by our stench after sitting in hot buses, many of us were waiting from fear that they would not touch us. Instead. They pushed us toward the bathroom in groups. Wipe that filth off you, they demanded. We don't want to smell you anymore. We did as we were told, splashing water on our arms and faces from the sinks, but unwilling to take off our clothes and be naked so close to the men. After the militant left, some of the girls whispered to one another and pointed at a desk. A black laptop computer set closed on top of it. I wonder if it works, one of the girls said. Maybe it has the internet then we can connect to Facebook and message some people to tell them we are in Mosul. I had no idea how to work a laptop or any computer. This was the first one I had ever seen. So I watched while a couple of the others approached the table slowly. The idea of connecting to Facebook had given us some hope and it spread through the room. Some of the girls stopped crying. Others stood up on their own for the first time since leaving Solec. My heart raced a little. I wanted so badly for the machine to work. A girl opened the laptop and the screen lit up. We gasped, excited, and washed the door for militants. She started tapping on some keys, then harder, frustrated. Soon she closed the lid and turned back to us, hanging her head. It does not work, she said, sounding like she might cry. I'm sorry. Her friends surrounded her, comforting her. We were all so disappointed. It's okay, you tried, they whispered to her. Besides, if it worked, Daesh would not have left it here. I looked over to the wall where the girls from Tel Azir sat. They had not moved or said anything to us since we arrived. They held one another so close it was hard to tell where one of them stopped and another started. Their faces when they looked back at me were like masks made of pure sorrow and I thought I must look the same. Thank you for joining me and sorry for the mistakes. It happens sometimes. Large chapter this one. I hope you like it. Thank you.